Hello and welcome to Talking Foosball's mini-series about BFLB during the 90s and early noughts. Last time we talked about how the club rose to prominence during the mid-90s and we ended our last episode with the win of the Champions League. In this episode, however, we'll be talking about the shit hitting the fan. Well, my name is Nick Viltang and I'll try to take you through this episode as best as I can and joining me is the author of the excellent BFB book, Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow. It's Talking Foosball's very own BFB expert, Terry DeFallon. Hello there, Nick. I actually had to put the fan in the other room. It's so big <laughs> and I've had to turn it off because there's just so much shit encrusted on it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yes, there will be plenty of shit going around on this show. So here's what we have in store for you today. We'll be talking about the megalomania hitting hard over at BFB the Bundesliga title that it yielded and the House of Cards collapsing in the end. All of that is to come. Welcome to part one of the second episode in our mini-series about BVB. To remind you where we left you last time around, let's just remind you of the fact that Borussia Dortmund had just won the Champions League in 1997. But after that successful campaign in the Champions League, the top brass at the club, they weren't really happy about what had been going on. They were furious about the fact that they didn't win that third consecutive Bundesliga title. I mean, it's it's hard to believe these days, but that was actually the case. So what sort of consequences did the lack of domestic silverware yield over there at Borussia Dortmund after the 96-97 season? Well, the difficulty was was that it felt that the team had had a great run and was a fantastic team, but was reaching a point where it needed to be refreshed, which would require money. And the sort of the model that Gerhard Niebaum had adopted had really been reliant on Dortmund winning the Bundesliga. And it is extraordinary to think about that now. These days, it's all about the Champions League, isn't it? It's not just Dortmund, but so many clubs now, you know, rely on Champions League income really to be able to continue at the level that they are at. Dortmund is a classic example, of course, of this. And fortunately, they've got four, possibly in the future, five opportunities to do that. But the problem with Dortmund was, was that really the money still, it was still mostly about, you know, domestic success and winning the Bundesliga in order to then be able to continue to finance the club in the style with which it's become accustomed. And they didn't do it. They missed out on a couple of key fixtures. It looks like they were perhaps had one eye on the Champions League because, of course, the money men will be telling you it's all about really it's about the Bundesliga. It's about domestic titles. That's what's important. Whereas, of course, the players and probably the, and to an extent the fans, but certainly the players will look to the European Cup, to the Champions League and say that that's the pinnacle, that's where the glory is and that conflict there. And so, unfortunately, it left Dortmund, it was a bittersweet end to the campaign. I mean, we celebrate it now and Dortmund celebrate that win now. And rightly so. It's an amazing win. It's 25 years ago this year. Yeah, and we look back on it with such rose-tinted glasses, but I think it's important to remember that at the time, actually, 
and this is a measure of how messed up the club was becoming, was that it was seen as being an unwelcome distraction to winning the Bundesliga, which is almost impossible to believe now. <laughs> well, I mean, given that they didn't win the Bundesliga and their financial model was about winning the Bundesliga in order to be able to, you know, finance transfers of players coming from Italy, which at that point was their best league in Europe. I mean, the Bundesliga TV money and all that, that generated more money to B4B, but they didn't get the title this year. So did they start spending less money on players after that Champions League win? Or did they continue in the same vein as they used to do before? I mean, just to remind you, on the last episode, we talked about Matthias Sommer, Jürgen Kohler, Julio Cesar, Paulus Sousa, Jürgen Heinrich. All of these transfers, they were big money transfers. So did they, you know, stop doing as many big money transfers after they failed to win the Bundesliga that year? Immediately afterwards, in fairness, if you look at the arrivals for the following couple of seasons, it's relatively modest, actually. I mean, there's Scott Booth, uh, who came in on a free. There's Harry Decevo, who came in from Utrecht, who came in for less than... This is all in British pounds, by the way. Apologies for not having the Deutschmarks translations, but for less than three million. It wasn't really until, I would say... I mean, yes, okay. Jens Lehmann comes in the following seasons, 98, 99, in the following summer. Uh, but that's still, well, in fairness, that's quite a big big amount of money along with Bakiru Salu. But I think you get to 99 and 2000 and then that's when they really actually do start spending quite big money. So I would argue that they were a little bit modest in their spendings immediately after that season unless there's some you know names there that I'm not seeing no I'm, I'm, I think you're right but the problem with uh, you know being a little bit more modest and additionally we have to imagine this Otmar Hitzfeld he actually uh, despite winning two titles on the bounce and winning the Champions League he actually was well promoted kind of right <laughs> he was <laughs> he was kind of promoted yeah he was what we call in in the UK with the, with the expression is kicked upstairs it refers specifically to it's a Westminster Parliament term when a member of Parliament has outlived his usefulness or has, has lost his seat or is reaching a retirement, then they kick him upstairs into the House of Lords where he has a degree of prestige but nothing like the same kind of influence and power that they had. And it was it's also used particularly in England for or was used in England for in, in the football parlance for for appointing unwanted managers as sporting directors because <laughs> they have cachet and they're loved by the fans and they have respect, but they don't want them to manage the club anymore. And unwisely, in my opinion, not the first or indeed the last time that the club would make an unwise decision, they blamed Hitzfeld for not concentrating and focusing the players' minds on the domestic situation being fully aware of what was required and they blamed Hitzfeld for this. But they couldn't sack him because I think it would have just looked too stupid. I mean, how on earth can you possibly sack a coach who's just won you a Champions League? So they kicked him upstairs to the sort of sporting director role, which, to be fair, was a role, you know, that they were moving towards. It's a, you know, it's a very progressive move in one respect, but it, it wasn't, I think, the best way, I think, to treat someone who had, uh, who had done so much. And especially when you consider the career that Hitzfeld had afterwards. You know, he was far from finished as a head coach. Yes, Bayern Munich fans will tell you that with a smile around their faces. I mean, so that was that Volt Mitzfeld in 1997. Uh, but what happened after that was that Borussia Dortmund once again thought, well, we go Italian. 
So they brought in Nevio Scala, who was an experienced Serie A manager, but who couldn't speak a word of German. And, well, he was brought to the Westfalen Stadion with some fanfare. He started for one season, finished 10th. That was followed by uh, the most charismatic man that German football has ever produced. His name is Michael Skibber. You know, he has, like, this look of a cement salesman who uh, has been traveling one too many days. Well, he stayed there... You know, a little over a season, he finished fourth during his first season. And his second season got off to a disastrous start. He was then replaced by the Austrian Bernd Kraus, who had a lot of success with the other Borussia, Borussia Mönchengladbach, during the early and uh, mid-90s. But he couldn't work out things either. So towards the end of that 99-2000 season, which we're moving to now, the club actually decided to bring in Udo Lattek, who, uh, to be fair, is one of the most decorated German coaches in football history, but his gone-by date had, you know, his he had expired a long time ago. He was really old at that point. And uh, alongside him, they placed a very young Matthias Zammer to study the ship. So what on earth? I mean, just running down the list of the uh, personal changes... In, in terms of the of coaching stuff, what on earth was, was going on at that time? Well, it's very difficult to get into the mind of, of particularly after Michael Skiber and Bernd Kraus, because it's, yeah, I mean, Kraus had some form, but I, there wasn't any sort of sense of, of pedigree there. And maybe there's a sort of perhaps understanding that the club is operating within reduced circumstances, although as we're about to find out, this changes, this mindset changes pretty pretty quickly. And it's just a series of misjudgments in coaching, which are very, very, you know, difficult to really explain and difficult to look into the heads of the people making those decisions, Michel Meyer and Gerd Niebaum. Just a quick word on Nevia Scala. I mean, yes, you're quite right. To be fair, not speaking the native language is not necessarily a drawback to being, you know, a successful or unsuccessful coach, although it does help. I mean, Nevia Scala was the coach of that great Parma team of the mid-90s, which, to be fair, didn't win anything. But, I mean, it was an amazing football team. And he did win the Intercontinental Cup. And there was much jubilation when Dortmund won the, the International Inter- Intercontinental Cup, what is now the World Club Cup, Dortmund becoming world champions for that one glorious moment. And there was much celebration. So, so I think his short time at Dortmund was eventful and did bring success but yeah, I mean, it, it all suddenly got very moribund until Matthias Sammer came in. And obviously at that point, things started to change all over the shop. Yeah. And, you know, that was not the 99-2000 season. And I mean, after those couple of horrid seasons that the club had had, you know, you would think that the leadership of the club should, you know, think about steadying the ship, getting back to basics, uh, thinking, well, hang on, maybe we've been thinking too big for our own good maybe we should make some changes and uh, see how we can for instance bring up more youngsters through the ranks instead of spending a lot of money on Serie A players but instead Gerd Niebaum and sporting manager Michael Meyer they thought no no we're not going down that road we should think even bigger now their idea was to take the club public onto the stock exchange and you know sell some of its shares to investors. So what did that mean for the club at that time? Well, that, there was a change in the rule which allowed, and I think if I remember rightly, it's in the book, but if I remember rightly, the commercial division of your club, you could list on the stock exchange. 
can fancy themselves as being dead progressive and forward thinking like they went for this and they raised a significant amount of money off the back of that, which they would then use to then be able to finance a revival on the pitch. And that is exactly what they did. So in the short term, it was fantastic news for the club. But of course, the difficulty is, you know, do these shares hold their value? And are you spending more than you're reasonably able to earn back over a reasonable period of time? Unfortunately, that proved not to be the case. Well, I mean, you know, going on to the stock exchange is one thing. I mean, as, as we've seen in the recent past, it is also a bit of a disadvantage because if, if big signings are happening or if big names are leaving the club, Borussia Dortmund actually has to ex uh, inform the stock exchange because they're listed as a public company. Mm, true. So um, that is a bit of a disadvantage for them. But going on to the stock exchange wasn't the only thing these guys were thinking about. They... <laughs> And, and this is actually my, my favorite bit about the megalomaniac extent they went to. They thought, well, hang on, we're Borussia Dortmund. We are actually too big to have a kit supply company. You know, I mean, back in these days, it had already become common that football teams were supplied by sporting goods companies like Adidas or Puma. And those companies had at that time already started to pay a decent amount of money for big clubs or you know, smaller clubs, to wear those products. However, Niebaum and Meyer thought that if we start our own sporting goods brand, we can make some dough here, right? So they started the lovely brand called goal.de. I think it's four or five O's in that goal there. And, you know, that kid supply supplied the team until 2004. And on top of that, you know, because what do you do once you've taken your club public onto the stock exchange, you've started your own kit supplying company? Well, you know, you also open your own travel agency to shift in some more cash of your customers. I mean, why were these two guys so keen on establishing so many different revenue streams without seemingly having a lot of competence when it came to actually knowing how to make these revenue streams work in the club's favor and actually make the club money instead of lose the club money well you've got to consider a number of factors that the first thing is is that you've you've sold these shares to people and they are you know for the commercial arm of the company and so therefore there'll be an expectation from the shareholders that you'll be doing something you know with with that value And so, therefore, one of those things would obviously be to branch out into related businesses, although I guess travel agency could be regarded as related. You also are looking at what I was saying earlier, you know, a, a need to be able to generate huge amounts of revenue to be able to supplement and pay for the large amounts of money that's being spent on transfer fees and on wages and indeed on investment into the stadium and the training facilities as well, the Steiner und Beiner, both very, very important. But I suspect deep down, Nick, I think you're right. I think it's kind of a bit of a, they just got, they just got carried away. You said megalomania. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but was it, is it Uli Hesser who tells the story? I think it's Gerd Niebaum who walked through a, a sports shop one day and saw all of these kits on sale and lots of Dortmund kits on sale, you know, with the, I don't know who was it, but it would have been Adidas, I think, wouldn't it? And thinking, You know, these guys are making tons and tons of money and they're only paying us X much. If we made these ourselves and sold them, manufactured and sold them, then all that money would come to us. Now, this is not a 
terrible idea in of itself, as long as it ends right there as a sort of idle thought that you have in your mind while you're doing a bit of shopping. But to then actually do that, I mean, Adidas, Puma, Nike, Macron, Bukta, you know, um, Lecoq Sportif, these are well-established Some of these brands going back to the 19th century, the early 20th century, they have been doing this stuff for decades. They are experts at it. It's viciously competitive and it requires huge amounts of talent and experience to be able to do that. You don't just knock that stuff up overnight and then suddenly think that you're just going you're, you're to make money. It's a, it's a whole nother area. Adidas don't buy and run football clubs. I mean, otherwise, I mean, if the Adidas guy went in, all the Adidas people, when he said, look at these, look at all these fans here in this football club. We should buy our own football club and run it ourselves. <laughs> no, because they don't know that that's a stupid idea because they're really, really hard things to do. And, and ultimately, you're right. I think they got it into their head that they could do it. They could do more than just this and that they could do anything. And so they tried to do anything um, and failed. I mean, you know, I had to put down your book when I read about this chapter in, in the history of, of British Dortmund and I was thinking I mean you have to consider several things here Mr. Niebaum first of all Adidas and all the other sporting brands they buy fabric at a huge massive volume that you are never going to be able to match mm. so they're getting much cheaper production costs than you are secondly you need administration you need you know in terms of the output of production that you will have compared to these guys And running that, you know, you are producing stuff at a much higher cost than they are. Mm. Additionally, you have to market yourself. If you are supplied by Adidas, it's an Adidas interest to market your stuff as well, which is entirely lost. And additionally, you have to build up an own network, you know, of, of stores that will uh, sell your products on a global basis. Which is, you know, not an easy task if you're the newly established gold.de. Whilst Adidas, they have established, you know, that network in the 50s, 60s and 70s and are sold worldwide. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're interested, listeners, according to the Wikipedia page, the, the, the gold.de supplied uh, the following to beyond Borussia Dortmund, uh, SCB Victoria Köln, Kickers Offenbach, Uh, Dynamo Dresden and some ice hockey teams and, and a curling team, it says here. So it was a complete miserable failure and ended up going out of business in 2006, 2008. Anyway, it didn't last very long. And yeah, for all those reasons that Nick has just said, you know, you're, you're entering into a, a, a realm uh, and a world, I mean... That they just had no clue. And obviously it's tragic. I mean, we kind of think it's quite funny now, but I mean, it was, it, it is, it is, you know, it was the, the consequences for these kind of decisions that were being made were perilous and, and almost ended the club. Right. We'll get to that in the next part of the show. But before we get that, let's just take a closer look of how things were going under Matthias Zama and old-timer Udil Lachtag. Uh, well, they actually managed to save the club, finishing 10th, At the end of that season, Matthias Zemmer was actually given the go-ahead to become the new head coach after that. And the results on the pitch, well, they improved dramatically. In his first full season in 2000-2001, the club finished third. And the following year, what happened then, Terry? So the following year, 2001-2002, they won the league. 
They won the league all in, arguably, they won by a Leverkusen's league. But <laughs> that's, an, that's another story. But yes, they won the league and with some fantastic players. I mean, they'd invested in, uh, you know, Christian Verns, who was an extremely expensive centre-half, a magnificent player. They still had Jürgen Kohler. They had Jens Lemon in that team making up that back four. They had the magnificent Dede, who Dortmund fans will know is an absolute, absolute club legend. Evan Nilsson on the other wing, yep. uh, which is compatriot. And then, of course, there was uh, that striker. That's the right. first 100 million Deutschmark man. Man, Marcio Amoruso, the Brazilian, who went for an eye-watering amount of money. I mean, this is, this is Galactico-level spending we're talking about here. You know, I mean, you're also looking at like Thomas Rizicki, Everton in there, Jan Kohler. I mean, the names, these players, I mean, absolute Galacticos. I mean, we're talking, we're, dare I say it, we're talking FC Hollywood comes to the Ruhr. <laughs> And this was at the absolute peak of Dortmund's glamour and the extent of their ambitions given full expression. This is Dortmund, the multi-platform super company that can win titles, that can sell you kits, that can book your holidays. You know, they could even flush your toilet if you wanted to. Yes, get near when comes around to your house and does it for you. Yeah, well, in, very nearly, you know. It's funny, it's a funny title because obviously there's fans of Dortmund, you know, who, who love this team of that particular vintage, particularly if you're at a certain point in your life It was a great team. I mean, I love that team because they were one of the most exciting teams. I mean, the 90s didn't produce a lot of exciting teams. This was an exciting team. Yeah. And I mean, the same season, uh, we should also mention the 2001-2002 season, they reached the UEFA Cup final and, and lost it to Feyenoord Rotterdam. Uh, yeah. I think it was Pierre van Hooydonk uh, getting a couple of goals, ultimately defeating Borussia Dortmund 2-1. I think one of the defenders, was it Jürgen Köhler maybe, who got a red card in that match? Um, I am almost certain that you are right, actually, Nick. So, I mean, fantastic season. And, I mean, this team continued to be successful under Zammer. They finished third the following season. And then they had a sort of, sort of a down period and finished sixth. Yes. But, I mean, if we were taking this summer era and, and look at it, and, and, you know, there are a lot of Borussia Dortmund fans who say that it best be forgotten. Yes. Because in the end, this was success created by borrowed money and the money that was borrowed, it exceeded the amount that Borussia Dortmund could pay back, you know, in the foreseeable future. Absolutely. There's an underlying tragedy to this team because it's, you know, this, is, this was a team that should not have been assembled because the club that was, that was paying for it could not afford it. And I mean, particularly, you know, that just in Germany, that just doesn't chime with German football culture. It's not authentic. It's damaging for other clubs. Conceivably, it's damaging for their own club. It's bad for the soul. I think this team in England would have been probably maybe this team would have been celebrated more because in England, our sensibilities are somewhat different. But in Germany, I think it's I may have this wrong, but my sense is, is that, you know, they take you know, good governance a lot more seriously than they do in other countries. And I think that that's why, yeah, it isn't as celebrated. I mean, when in the book, I spend more time talking about the problems behind the scenes than I do about this team. And uh, it's when if I ever do a second edition of the book, I may well actually spend some time celebrating this team more because it was glorious. 
And I suppose, you know, Dortmund fans can and should celebrate the fact that it happened because all's well that ends well in the end. Obviously, the club is still here and still very much alive. So, (laughs) Yes, it's Germany's version of Leeds United only with a slightly better ending. Well, anyways, doom and gloom coming up after the break. All right, here we go. And as, as, as we said, doom and gloom coming up for part two of our second episode in our B4B mini-series. So it was 2004 and then President Gerd Niebaum, well, he got to a point where he actually realized, well, being a, a company that's gone public and is listed on the stock exchange does have its downsides as he actually had to go out in public and admit that the club's finances had gone south somewhat and that they had done so in a rather spectacular fashion so what he actually revealed was that despite going public only four years prior to that the club had managed to run up a debt of a massive 98 million euros things even got so bad that michael meyer went to bayern munich asked them for a loan in order to be able to pay players wages that's how big the hole was that these officials in the upper echelons of the Westfalenstadion had dug for themselves. So some of it had to do with the fact that the club didn't manage to qualify for the knockout stages of the Champions League in 2003-2004. But actually, as we sort of alluded to in part one here, is most of it had to do with the fact that Maya Niebaum, after years of success in the 90s, they developed a sense of, well, well let's call it megalomania for lack of better possibilities, because how could they allow this situation to get that bad? 98 millions in the reds after having taken your company public only four years prior to that, having a massive payday from selling those shares. Well, it's a classic case of chasing your losses, isn't it, Nick? I mean, the gambler chasing their losses. They presumably thought you've got to keep spending, committing more money, and then sooner or later it will pay off and then you'll be able to pay it all back and it just didn't work out that way and you know yeah obviously after the success of the title yeah it things didn't exactly fall apart by any means but by this point the champions league is becoming more of an important thing there's more money coming into the champions league and and dortmund are not qualifying for that competition and they're moving into a kind of second tier status they lost to club Brugge that season in uh, in a in a playoff match. Uh, it's the famous the- one with is it Mike Michael Meyer who throws away his mobile phone mm. at the end of that game because they've lost because he knows that this is the moment that they have you know it's all falling apart from this point onwards. Yeah, it's a very very significant day and it it's kind of you know it marks the beginning of an e- of, of the end of them and certainly the death of an old world and the beginning of the birth of a new one for Dortmund. Right, so. As I said, this uh, Mr. Niebuhr had to go out and public and admit that in 2004. Well, another date that is rather important in Borussia Dortmund uh, club history is uh, the 14th of March 2005. So why does that date have a big historic significance for Beer for Beer? Can you tell us what happened that day, uh, Terry? But if I remain remembering my rightly, this is the big meeting with the uh, club's creditors. And by this point, it's the new CEO, 
It's uh, uh, Hans uh, Jörg, Joachim Watzke, who I'm sure we all know, put together uh, the recovery plan. And it was held in a, in a corrugated building outside an airport. Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf Airport, thank you. And the assortment of creditors all turned up. And it was really was make or break. And, you know, he got his 2005 equivalent of PowerPoint up on the screen and said, right, lads, <laughs> this is what we do. Here is the plan for recovery. And it meant a loan, another loan, like a consolidation loans, which were all the rage in 2005. But what it meant was that these guys all had to agree to defer their repayments, you know, over on an instalment plan. And that it was a, it was a fairly impressive and detailed blueprint for recovery. But it required all of the creditors to be, to agree to do it, and there were many. And there were many. I mean, they needed a big, big, big haul, you know, in order to fill these creditors, and and and, and you know, it it took a while, and you know, everybody knew that it was happening. This meeting, and so, you know, there were many Dortmund fans who were crowding around their radios, and had they had smartphones back then, they would have been crowding around them too, waiting for the decision to be heard, and. Obviously, as you can probably imagine, um, the creditors agreed to the new plan. I mean, looking back, we can see why they did it. Because if they had not done it, then the club would have gone into liquidation there and then. And so then they would have been picking the bones out of what was left of the club. They would have never have got their money back. But if someone is putting forward to them, someone else, it should be said, a new face is putting forward to them what appears to be a rational plan, backed up by finance, I can't for the life of me now, remember the bank that lent them the money. But it was all backed up um, and and they they agreed to it. I mean, they would, you know, why not? What did they have to lose? They'd already probably lost. If they said no, then they wouldn't have got hardly any of their money back. But they said yes, and then they did. They got all of their money back. And in fact, Dortmund's plan was so successful that they actually got paid off ahead of time as well so because they did a deal with sport five which was somewhat unexpected which gave them a, a load of new money that came in and they were able to pay that off and the deal with Zignella Duna for example for the Westfalen Stadion's uh, naming rights which I always uncharitably still insist on calling the Westfalen Stadion even though actually I think Zignella Duna did them a big favour by doing such a such a long-term deal to guarantee some finances for that club and some stability and there was a road back and so you know in the end Yeah, they were able to save the club and they were able to keep going. <laughs> so the shit had really hit the fan, as we alluded to uh, earlier in the show, but the club actually managed to save itself by the skin of their teeth. Well, uh, there were some consequences for, for some of the old faces that uh, had been so successful in the 90s and, uh, you know... Uh, up to a point in, in the early noughts. Gerd Niebaum, he left as the leader of the uh, LLC in uh, February 2005. He also stepped down as the president of the club in 2004. Additionally, Michael Meyer, the sporting director, he was actually on an expiring contract that wasn't then extended beyond the 2004-2005 season. And in came Reinhard Raubal as the new president of the club. The aforementioned Aki Watzke as CEO and Michael Sorg as the new sporting director. How crucial was the entrance of those three men? And can you introduce them a little bit to listeners who haven't heard too much about these three guys? So Reinhard Raubel was previously the club president back in the 1970s, if I remember rightly, and had previously been in charge of the club and had helped with the financial revival of the club back when they were in financial difficulty back then. 
a public figure in the area and a member of the SDL of the, what's the German Social Democrat? SDP. P. SDP, SDP. Yeah. and um, a sitting member of parliament at one point, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was Minister for Finances in, in the federal state of North Westphalia, but that lasted all but three days or something. Okay, all right, fair enough. Okay, so a moderately public, public figure, it should be said. Nevertheless, I mean, a man of substance um, with, with a previous history with the club and a popular guy who was welcomed back. Hans-Joachim Vatsko, I would imagine most Dortmund fans know who Aki Vatsko is. Obviously, he came in as CEO and completely, you know, effectively sort of like not to replace Niebaum because, I mean, Niebaum was president and kind of CEO, which maybe also tells you what's there. But he was there really to take control of the day-to-day running of the club as, you know, as, as a whole. But Michael Zork, of course... I mean, you know, if you're new to Dortmund and you're not familiar too much with Mikhail Zork, or if you're only aware of Mikhail Zork as the sporting director, obviously he was playing for Dortmund. I mean, I think he's still the most appearances for Dortmund. Former captain, played in the Champions League final, you know, played in the effort in the DFB Pokal final, won titles, scored loads of goals, hugely, hugely loved and respected man, only just stepping down as sporting director this season as we're recording. And, I mean, these guys led the revival of Dortmund to the club that they would eventually become and the club that they are now, particularly Vatska, who I think, obviously, his business acumen and, uh, you know, uh, brought the club through and looked after the commercial side of things, looked after the bills, made certain that the debts were repaid and properly serviced and, and, and also took advantage of what must be said, the legacy of Niebaum, and Maya, and that is the Steiner. The money that was spent on the facilities at the club came to the rescue of the club in the end because that was you know a huge amount of capital that they could then go to to the bank and say, look, this is what we've got, so we can borrow against this, which is much much better than borrowing against players' values. So so I mean you know that kind of well it saved them from themselves, and Hans Joachim Vatska was was in a position to do that, and of course Michael Zork Michael Zork was the guy who led the fight back on the pitch. He was the guy who appointed the coaches, maybe not necessarily the most inspiring coaches straight away, but he was crucial in the slow, gradual rebuilding of the squad, which paid off with spectacular results, as we will see, you know, in another podcast. Well, I mean, if we take a closer look at the first four years of that trio and what it meant in terms of the results on the pitch, I mean, at that point, I think Borussia Dortmund fans were probably happy about the fact that the club had managed to save itself financially but in terms of what was actually going on on the pitch after all the high earners and very very talented players had been shipped out the period between 2004 and 2008 it really wasn't a pleasant period uh, in terms of the football that was being played at the Westfalenstadion. No, no, it wasn't. I mean, and also, I mean, yeah, as you say, I mean, you've got players leaving, you know, pretty quickly in order to get them off the payroll. And the, obviously the players coming in are, are not of the same, you know, quality. But, you know, shout out to, you know, Ebi Smolarek, Delron Buckley, you know. I mean, you know, Alex Fry. You know, these are, you know, there's a Stephen Pienaar, mm. you know, these are, you know, players and there are also like Mladen Petric as well the, and Diego Klimovic are names that spring to mind. 
uh, when I think about this period. It wasn't all terrible, you know, but it was, you know, mostly terrible. Didn't, didn't Roman Weidenfeller arrive in that period? Roman Weidenfeller arrived in this time as well. I mean, Nuri Jahim was beginning to make his way through. They signed Jakub Blaszczykowski in 2007. Mats Hummels comes along at this time as well. So, you know, I mean, the green shoots of recovery are, are, are there. I think about David Adonka as well, who was a, who had a wonderful 2006 World Cup, if you remember. But these are very much the positives. It was, generally speaking, pretty average. It was bang average. With the one exception of the work for me, the worst of the three coaches that you mentioned is Thomas Doll, because that football was just so average that it was just, it wasn't, it, it wasn't even bad. It was just so nothing. And yet they managed to f- arrive at the DFB Pokal <laughs> Cup final in 2008. 2007, 2008. And I mean, obviously they met by... It was a legendary press conference there, wasn't there? Yeah, I don't know whether I remember that, to be honest with you. Tell me about that. I mean, it was basically Thomas Dahl uh, losing it in, in front of the entire media uh, and uh, basically speaking a bunch of gibberish, just self-aggrandizing himself saying that well let's look at all the things what we've accomplished here and laughing his ass off and not being you know seemingly <laughs> uh, you know not being uh, well off uh, as, as some people would describe him and uh, well I mean they didn't win that cup final he lost his job Bert van Marwijk and uh, Jürgen Röber they had tried their hands in that period none of them really made it big with Borussia Dortmund but I think the headline of that period is financial stability was the biggest key of all. Yeah. Not necessarily building a team that could, you know, reach greater heights in the future. No, absolutely. This was about staying alive, really. And everything else was a bonus um, that period of time. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the period of time that we've covered in this podcast, you know, from the day after the Champions League win, through to the end of the German Cup final, uh, to uh, 10 years later, you're talking about the most amazing rise, winning the title and owning, having some of the best players in the world on your books to really, you know, scuffing around the floor looking for, 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 for discarded betting slips and, and borrowing money from Bayern Munich, which, of course, that money was promptly paid back, it should be said. But nevertheless, it is something that Bayern Munich every now and then like to remind people of that they did. And so they should, because it's, 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 it's a bad situation to find yourself in. But yeah, I mean, what a journey. And I think we can just be grateful that the club survives. And, and you know what, Nick, if, if, I guess if the club had, had done nothing else after that and had just trundled along like a mid-table, you know, Bundesliga club, then, you know, you'd like to think that at least Dortmund fans would look back on that time and say, well, you know what, it could have been far, far worse. Indeed. Well, I think this is a lovely note to end on for this episode uh, the second episode in our three-part mini-series about Borussia Dortmund and uh, well now that we've talked about the rise of the club uh, during the 90s the downfall that started in the early noughts and uh, well we've actually 
reached the end of the mods here. Which means that we, yeah, we still have one episode left in this series. And that episode is going to be about the rebirth of the club. Really looking forward to talking to you about that one, Terry. Uh, and as always, it's been an absolute pleasure and delight to talk to you today as well. So before I let you go, please tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your book. So you can find me on Twitter at Terry DeFellon. The book is available. The paper book is available from Ockley Books. Uh, if you're in the UK, then you might even be able to wander into a bookshop and find it there. Or you can order it directly from Ockley Books or it is available from Amazon. For international listeners, you might find that you're better off buying the ebook version, which is now available from all ebook stockists, certainly all ones that I'm aware of anyway, and I believe that the price, because when we're recording this, it's not quite yet available, but I believe the price is $6.99, euros or pounds. Mm, excellent. Well, this episode has been produced with the utmost of care by Aiden Rantoul. My name is Nick Wiltung, and you can find me on Twitter at Normusings. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, please do feel free to share your thoughts with us or just to say hello if you want to do that. Uh, you can do that at Talking Foosball. We always love to hear from you. Until next time, it is goodbye for now. Goodbye.